I'm delighted to introduce to you our speaker for today, Burke Hendricks, Professor of Political Science at the University of Oregon. Professor Hendricks' research and teaching focus on normative political theory, indigenous politics, global justice, and the history of political thought. He's especially interested in theories of political authority, states' territoriality, historical injustice, and the ethics of political action. He's the author of two monographs, Ownership, Authority, and Self-Determination, Moral Principles and Indigenous Rights Claims, and Strategies of Justice, Aboriginal Peoples, Persistent Injustice, and the Ethics of Political Action. And he is the co-editor with Deborah Bumgold of the volume Colonial Exchanges, Political Theory, and the Agency of the Colonized. He's the author as well of articles in the journals Australian Journal of Public Administration, Perspectives on Politics, Political Theory, Encounters, an international journal for the study of culture and society, critical review of social and political philosophy, and in the Oxford Handbook of Indigenous Peoples Politics. His current research evaluates normative questions surrounding the land rights, sovereignty, and political choices of Indigenous peoples within the United States, Canada, and other countries. Uh, as a 2021-2022 Oregon Humanities uh, Faculty Center's Faculty Research Fellow, He's working on a project. He will speak to us today. Make sure I've got the title right. Allies, Not Subjects, American Indian Responses to American Republicanism, 1776 to 1934. Please join me in welcoming Burke Hendricks. Um, <clears throat> thanks, Paul, for the introduction. Um, so thanks for everyone for coming today. I know these talks, it's, I'm happy to be uh, restarting the in-person version, I guess. Um, the talk that I'm going to give today is about a, what's basically a pedagogical project. Um, and so this book I'm working on, Allies Not Subjects, <coughs> is intended primarily to <coughs> help with the way that uh, American political thought is taught within political science departments across the country. So I'm going to be talking about sort of that framing as we go. Um, I'm going to be talking about what the project itself looks like, but I'm also going to be asking at the end um, in, a, in a very sincere way for help and feedback on it because um, it is a project which is hopefully going to play a role in shifting the way that um, courses are taught at, you know, to, to pick a number out of the air, 30 or 40 universities across the country, which is a non-trivial number. Um, so, okay, so here's the outline of the talk. Um, essentially, we've got five stages of it here. The first, I'm going to talk a little about the context of the project, what sort of project this is. And then I'm going to talk about the way that African-American political thought has been integrated into American political thought over the past 15 or 20 years um, as a kind of rough model for the kind of integration that we're looking at here. Um, then I'm going to talk a little bit about the way that American Indian thinkers are currently framed within this uh, pedagogical field. Then I'll focus on the discussing the book itself, and I'll have a little bit, obviously, a bit more weight there than in the other elements. And then I'll talk at the end about limitations of the book as it's conceived and, and questions that I hope to, to get your feedback on. Um, so the image, I would just say, um, is uh, from, this is the, the phoenix associated with the masthead of the Cherokee Phoenix newspaper in the 1830s. Um, so just to clarify that that's what the image is, one of the things I will say just at this point was I had a lot of uh, difficulty in thinking about what appropriate imagery is for a talk like this. And part of the problem is that given the audience I'm largely speaking to, there's really no imagery that would resonate other than um, a picture of something like Sitting Bull. And we'll talk about the limitations of that as it's 
as the current framing is. So to talk a little bit about the context of the project here. Um, this is just a map showing us roughly the loss of native lands, 1800 to 1900. The areas in blue are um, originally held native lands. The areas in red are reservation spaces. If you follow it out, you'll see some of the areas in red on the very top of the map along the Canadian line um, are look, look much bigger than they actually uh, become. And so 1900, um, things continue to shrink in most instances after this, although uh, Navajo does get you know, a little bit bigger. Um, so this is the background. Um, for you know, most anything having to do with the history of the United States is this expansion. There is an entire pedagogical enterprise um, which goes by the name of American political thought. Most political science departments in the U.S. teach a class which is called American political thought or something quite close to it. Um, what I have here are pictures on the bottom row of um, anthologies that are assembled to help with the teaching of this. Many times the people who are teaching these courses are not specialists in American political thought. They are people who, in a sense, get in one of these anthologies and figure out how to teach from that anthology. So the anthologies have uh, a lot of social power, you might say. Um, you, you notice the reiterated title. There's American political thought, American political thought, American political thought, each of those by a, a completely different set of editors. Um, up on the top, it is the, the one up on the top is a journal called American political thought, um, which has been in business for about 12 or 13 years. Um, the Jack Miller Center, which I've located up there as well, is uh, called the Jack Miller Center for Teaching Americans, America's Founding uh, Principles in History. Um, and the Jack Miller Center actually funds the journal American Political Thought. Jack Miller Center has conferences across the country five or six a year, which are basically dedicated to um, reading historical texts and talking about them. And I've been to a number of the Jack Miller Center events, and they're, they're pretty interesting and useful. Um, and as I'll talk about, there's basically nothing to do with native content there at all. Um, but the Jack Miller Center has done a, a pretty good job in terms of uh, bringing African-American thinkers into this conversation. So the key idea I just want to have here is that this, there is an entire set of pedagogical tools here that people are often drawing on as their primary scaffolding for teaching these courses. Um, and that primary scaffolding uh, basically has almost nothing, uh, and in some cases, a, what I would say are unhelpful things to say um, about native writers. Um, and so the, the basic problem that this book intends to respond to is to this absence. Um, I've, the book comes out of, um, sort of originally I had written a couple of articles on individual native thinkers, one for an edited volume that ended up falling through, um, another that I was putting together with the idea that it was a journal article and um, in presenting them at conferences, I had colleagues say, this looks really helpful, can I use this um, in teaching my class? And I said, sure, that's fine. And so um, a number of, it's, I think seven or eight people at different uh, institutions have used a couple of the in early draft chapters to frame their teaching, and generally they said it's been really helpful, it's actually changed what they've ended up doing. And so um, there is this gap, and it's a gap that people in the field are, I think, aware of, um, but there's really not anyone who's well-placed to do anything about it. And I don't think I'm actually the ideally placed person to do anything about it either, but I'm the person who's best placed, I guess, to say it a little bit that way. 
So there's been a, an increase in the integration of African-American thought, and I use the term integration here in, a, in a sort of for its, its broader associations as well, um, in relation to American political thought over the past really 20 years, but certainly over the past 10 years. The expectation is that someone who's teaching American political thought out of one of these anthologies is going to be bringing in African-American thinkers and talking about them in a fairly robust way. Um, so the top row of folks here, this is I've called this building an American canon, are people who have more than one article about them in the journal American Political Thought. Um, and so Du Bois, King, Baldwin, and Douglas are, have multiple articles about them in this journal. And the journal's been around about 12 years. So, um, but they publish, I think, three issues a year, four issues a year. It's not a huge journal. So its, it's percentage of African-American political thought is growing over time. And it's, it's, you know, it's not bad. There's, there's, um, I think there's five or six articles about Baldwin. Um, and so there's, there's a, quite a bit of richness for that. Uh, what we have down below is... Uh, edited volume called African-American Political Thought, which has about 30 um, African-American political writers from um, the pre-revolutionary era to the, the present. Uh, and the two scholars who did this are both people who self-consciously see themselves as intervening into these discourses about American political thought. Um, and so the, the folks on the bottom, um, Booker T. Washington, Harriet Jacobs, and Ida B. Wells are people who um, figure in this volume. They also figure in the work of uh, a colleague and former student who is an American political thought thing, uh, writer who's really interested in the sense bringing Booker T. Washington, Harriet Jacobs, and Ida B. Wells into conversation. Um, so there is a lot of building of this canon here. Um, the Jack Miller Center, which uh, I've mentioned, actually does a pretty good job. They're, they sponsor a, the Frederick Douglass uh, Forum on Law and Justice at Linfield College, and that they have a workshop every year that's sort of centered around the work of Frederick Douglass or Abraham Lincoln or other or abolitionists or the sort of Reconstruction period. So there's an increasingly robust um, infrastructure here. The general framing, unsurprisingly, is that equal treatment has long been promised but never realized. Um, and this has become, for many American political thought thinkers, or, or teachers, excuse me, the kind of core counterframing, you might say, to a, a kind of Whig history of um, everything's great in the U.S. And, and everything has always been developing in this wonderful way. And the African-American thinkers are the people who sort of play the largest role in pushing back against that within this, um, this, this set of arguments. Um, the idea that equal treatment has long been promised but never realized, you could um, highlight this with uh, the work of Martin Luther King, who talks about that America has, has written a check that's been, you know, has come back in sufficient funds and so on. Um, it goes back a long time. Um, one of the early people associated with this style of argument is David Walker in 1829, drawing on the language of the Declaration of Independence. Um, and, and I don't necessarily want to read this, but I just I think it's important to see this up there, that in 1829, in the period when slavery is still um, increasing with within its in its brutality and viciousness and, and geographical spread um, you see Walker trying to draw on the language of the Declaration of Independence this language deeply anchored in language I would say that current uh, people teaching American political thought classes care a lot about they teach that and it's people like Walker people like um, Douglas people uh, like um, King who are drawing on this language of the Declaration of Independence really resonate with this broader story of American political thought. Um, so that's a, a kind of the, the central framing, I would say, that African-American political thought has developed um, within American political thought. And I think there's a lot of value in that. I think it's getting some traction. Um, it's not perfect traction, but it's, it's getting some traction.
The problem, so turning now to the framing of American Indian thinkers, um, this is a situation where there's just not much out there. And so what I'm interested in doing in this book is building what I'm calling a kind of native starter kit. Um, and I'm trying to think of it uh, self-consciously as a starter kit because with African-American political thought, I think it's, it's clearly there's growing into a canon um, that you need to know. You need to know Du Bois. You need to know um, Douglas. You, you, know, you need to know Baldwin. There's just developing canonization. I'm, I, ideally, what this book would do would set that kind of canon um, but I don't feel that I'm competent to set that kind of canon, and I feel that's the kind of canon that has to come out of a more complicated set of exchanges. Um, and so what I'm envisioning this book as is something like building a native starter kit. Um, and I'll talk a little bit about how I'm envisioning that um, in, in a second, but I do want to say a little bit about the current framing that exists in APT. So there's not much in it. What does show up, so there are works by indigenous authors that show up in American political thought uh, volumes, not in the journal. So in the journal American political thought, um, I did a search through the entire journal. Um, there are no articles primarily about native authors. I know I've reviewed two, two articles for the journal that were on native authors, neither of which landed. Um, the current editor is one of the people who has um, taken one of my early chapters and used it in her teaching. So I know that she's not going out of her way to be hostile uh, because she's said several times it was really helpful to her teaching and so on. Um, but there somehow it's not showing up in the journal. What shows up in the edited volumes, these anthologies, is pretty thin. And what shows up is often, um, I would say, counterproductive in the hands of faculty who don't necessarily know what to do with it. Um, and, and that's, again, part of the presumption is that faculty members, a lot of the faculty members who teach this don't really know what they have when they get this anthology, and they're trying to figure out how to teach as they have it. So from this anthology, American Political and Constitutional Thought, which is two volumes, it has um, a huge amount of stuff in it. It has about 15 pages of different work from Native folks in it across the, say, 1,500 total pages of the volume. Um, one of the speeches is, is what claims to be this speech with no commentary at all uh, by Sitting Bull, the Powder River speech, 1875. Um, there's a lot of interesting things going on in this speech. There's also a lot of potential for this speech to be handled by faculty members who don't know much in a really ham-fisted way that ends up replicating, especially in the minds of students who, you know, not that students really grow up on Western movies anymore, but the, that kind of mythos still suffuses a lot of things. And that's still, that's going to kind of show up in here. So, you know, looking at the text here, Behold, my friends, the spring has come. Every seed is awakened in all animal life. It is through this mysterious power that we too have our being. We therefore yield to our neighbors, even our animal neighbors, the same right as ourselves to inhabit this vast land. There's some really interesting stuff in there. But if you're not prepared to sort of know where that's coming from, it's probably um, just going to be glossed past it glossed past it. Yeah, here, my, my friends, now we have to deal with another people, small and feeble when our forefathers first met them, but now great and overpowering. Strangely enough, they have a mind to till the soil. My brothers, shall we submit, or shall we say to them, first kill me before you take possession of my fatherland? I think this is a thing to be really handled with caution, because there's a lot of students who are going to hear that and say, oh, this is, of course, what happened. Yeah, it's um, settler colonialism came in, uh, native people were all killed off, and their land was taken. Um, end of story. And so there's a lot of students who are, I, I'm afraid anyway, who are going to hear this kind of text as a reiteration of a sort of story they don't have to think much about and a story that ends up being whether they intend it that way or not kind of morally comforting. It's, it's bad things happened in the past. Um, all the native folks are gone now. 
trouble over. Um, and you also see, also see Sitting Bull, who is responding primarily to um, American expansion with militarized violence. I mean, he's trying initially to evade, um, and eventually he has to take up arms because his evasion is not working anymore. Um, again, this, this sort of poses Native people as primarily responding to the United States in the way of militarized violence. Now, uh, often people did, and with good reason, um, but it also undercuts the kind of theoretical arguments, the space for theoretical argumentation that Native people are making in relation to this. Um, the text is also kind of slippy because it's not actually a speech by Sitting Bull in 1875. It's a speech attributed backward to Sitting Bull by Charles Eastman, who is a Dakota writer writing in 1920. And so, and, and if you read this speech in light of reading the rest of Eastman, it doesn't sound like anyone but Eastman. It sounds very clearly like Charles Eastman. Um, Charles Eastman is a really inter interesting intellectual figure who is, in a sense, trying to shift the way that Indians are conceived in the American political imaginary at the time, um, trying to, he's, he's at the same, he's, he's associated with the um, founding of the Boy Scouts movement. He's, he's associated with this idea that being free requires going back into nature and uh, living a very different kind of non-urbanized life than is, has been there. So Eastman is himself quite interesting. Um, attributing this just to Sitting Bull is something that, um, that misses all of that interest, I guess, is to say. So um, to say that a lot of what's in these volumes is is going to be opaque to the people who need to teach it, and when it's not going to be opaque, it's potentially a little bit hazardous to them. Um, so the question then is, what is the central framing as well? And one of the problems that happens in American political thought is there's no real framing of how Native folks fit. Um, so the basic framing that I'm working with may seem really obvious, um, but the basic framing is that American Indian nations are political allies of the United States rather than minorities to be integrated. And, and the term allies, you know, calling attention to the political character of this, the existence of treaties and treaty relationships um, that are building multiple peoples living in, um, in ideally collaboration with one another. Um, part of the problem right now is that insofar as, as Native figures appear in these volumes, there's no basic framing of them. And the, the counter-framing in relation to African Americans of integration and inclusion is really strong. That language that the Declaration of Independence calls for inclusion is really powerful. Faculty members know how to make that resonate in all sorts of ways with students, and they generally don't know what to do with this. So part of the hope of the book is to um, build a toolkit so that they can um, talk about this kind of framing to their students. Um, you know, there's not going to be an equivalent of hearkening back to the Declaration of Independence. Um, um, it would be nice if there were something like that, but, but I don't think there is. Um, okay, so... Now to, to come to the book itself. Um, so I know there's a lot of framing for what the book is, but I do want to sort of set out the problematic that the book is trying to engage with um, so that it's, it's clear sort of what it's trying to do. Excuse me. So constructing the book itself. Um, the chapter structure of the book is basically going to be reiterated. I'll talk about, right now I'm envisioning about eight chapters for this book as a whole. Each one of them will focus on a specific, either a native thinker or in the cases of two chapters, which I can talk about, uh, treaty records. Um, primarily the people I want to look at are people whose writing we have in their own words. And so rather than speeches that have been relayed by others, um, that these are things that are written in English by um, authors. And we can talk about the limitations of that because it's, there, there are some potentially quite sharp limitations there. Um, 
part of the idea is that each chapter will be centered around a text that is sort of 15 to 20 pages long, 10 to 20 pages long, a primary text that faculty members could give their students as the assignment. And then they could read the chapter from the book and basically know what they could say for a lecture's worth of class. That's the idea, is that um, if you don't know how to do this, you assign the text and then you read the chapter and then you go in the next day and you at least have a starter kit. Again, the presumption is that's not going to be enough, um, but the first time you do it, you're, once you get student feedback, you'll be able to find your feet. Um, so the the chapters are structured in such a way that they begin with a non-indigenous text that ideally would be recognizable to American political thought scholars, something that should fall within the kind of central contours of, of that discourse. Um, then a brief biography of the chapter's indigenous author, it, or in the cases where it's a treaty record. Um, so I have a chapter on Six Nations diplomats, and, and there I'm talking primarily about the kind of biography, if you will, of the, the Six Nations institutions, um, what the Haudenosaunee looks like, and, and sort of how it how it, uh, how it exists. Um, then the bulk of the chapter will look at the exposition of key themes, rhetorical strategies, empirical claims, and so on in the text. That's really the bulk of the chapter. Ideally, walking faculty through largely in the order that pieces appear in the text itself. Um, and so to say, if you're reading it, then I'm largely going to talk about things in the order that they occur in the primary text. Um, and then they close with brief discussion of some broader questions the text raises that may be relevant for classroom discussion. So that's what the chapter structure looks like. So now I'm just going to walk a little bit about through two of the chapters. Um, there, right now, there are three of the chapters that exist. There was a, a fourth chapter that um, I have a pretty full version of, and, and I don't think it fits. Um, and so it's been since sort of ejected into the ether. Um, but I can, I can say a little bit about that as well. Um, so we'll talk about two of the chapters that exist. These are both chapters that in earlier drafts, people at other institutions made use of. Um, so they're the ones that I have written because I've had the most conversations with faculty about them and so on. So the first chapter, um, the second chapter of the book, looks at uh, the idea of civilization and the Cherokee resistance to removal in the 1820s, really sort of starting in about 1810, um, going through till the late 1830s. Um, but I'm going to be looking specifically at a letter by Elias Boudinot, who is the gentleman whose picture is up there. He was the editor of the Cherokee national newspaper, the Cherokee Phoenix. And so the image that appears on my sort of organizational slides is um, the header from the, the Phoenix, which he was responsible for, choo for choosing. Um, so this is uh, just to walk through the chapter a little bit. So as I say, the idea is that we would start with a text which is recognizable to American political thought scholars in something not having to do primarily with Native folks, um, but with other kinds of figures. And so um, we're going to begin, the chapter begins with a letter from Thomas Jefferson, which is not only... Um, sort of doesn't only resonate in terms of content, it's actually something that was later reproduced in the Cherokee Phoenix by Boudinot. Um, it's something that apparently either this letter or an 1809 letter that uh, Cherokees actually had printed copies of and distributed to themselves as part of their project of kind of changing their civilizational structure, if you will, as a form of self-defense. So they had something like this letter in hand as a checklist to say, okay, Jefferson said if we do these things, we're not going to be forced away. And the Cherokees more or less took that checklist and started uh, the process of reinventing their society 
in um, some pretty substantial ways. And Boudinot is himself a, uh, an element of that. I should say, actually, just to go back to Boudinot himself, um, as a young man, he was sent to a high school in New England, um, basically to learn to not just speak English, but to um, learn European nat natural law, international law traditions, um, to basically become someone who could be a future speaker for the Cherokee Nation. Um, things turn a little bit complicated. They also, most of the young men that go to this end up um, Christianized and uh, married to white women. And actually, Boudinot is the second native guy who marries a white woman. And the school is then shut down after that um, because it's of the, you know, the the racial mixing that's going on along with it. Um, his cousin had done it the year before, married a white woman, and they were sort of like, well, that's not so great. Second time, they just shut the school down. So that's so Boudinot is not someone who, in a sense, has escaped the uh, an awareness of the racialized character of the world by you know going to this this situation. If anything, it's sort of heightened it. So this, this is a letter from Jefferson. Jefferson saying, you know, I see with my own eyes the endeavors you've been making to incur. Uh, to encourage and lead you in the way of improving your situation. They have not been unsuccessful. It's been like grain grown in good ground, agricultural yeah. metaphors. You're becoming farmers, learning the use of plow and hoe, enclosing your grounds, employing the labor in their cultivation, which you formerly employed in hunting and war. And I see handsome specimens of cotton cloth raised, spun, and woven by yourselves. And there's more about horses and cattle and so on that, that come out of this. So the chapter looks specifically, I should have the year of the text for this, but it's 1826. So the Jefferson letter is 1806. This is 1826. Elias Boudinot, um, recently leaving um, his, his school situation, is sent along the eastern seaboard to go to a number of churches and try to raise money so that the Cherokee Nation can build a newspaper, so they can uh, basically uh, buy a printing press. And um, he's also trying to raise money for a, a school, um, which is sort of halfway between a regular school and a seminary, you might say. Um, one of the things that's interesting about Boudinot and, and the contrast here with Apes, who I'll be talking about next, I think is, is pretty sharp. And part of the reason I pair these chapters is because that contrast is pretty sharp. One of the things Boudinot and most of the people associated with the Cherokee resistance do is they take the language of savagery as put upon them for granted. And so one of the things we see Boudinot doing is saying, look, what is an Indian? Is he not formed from the same materials as yourself? For of one blood, God created all the nations that dwell on the face of the earth. Here, his Christianity is also a reiterated theme that I could, I could talk more about. Um, Though it be true that he is ignorant, that he is heathen, that he is a savage, yet no more than all others have been under similar circumstances. 18 centuries ago, what were the inhabitants of Great Britain? And so Boudinot's basic framing, and again, this runs throughout many people in the Cherokee resistance, is to take for granted the portrayal of the Cherokees as savages, but then to attempt to show that the Cherokees are undertaking the kinds of social changes that Jefferson requested in this letter so that they have a legal right to remain where they are. There's a lot of interesting things in the text. It's a pretty short text. One of the things it does, and I don't have a slide for this, it, it enumerates the, um, the number of horses and cattle uh, based on a recent Cherokee sen uh, census, the amount of, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, grain mills. Um, the number of houses, the degree of literacy. It talks about that the Cherokee has become a written language over the past few years um, after Sequoia, who the tree is named after, uh, came up with a Cherokee syllabary that could put Cherokee into written language and, and um, have it be learned quite readily. Um, so Boudinot talks about these kind of civiliz civilizational changes, I think is the easiest way to say what he's trying to do. And again, Boudinot ultimately endorses that kind of argument, but tries to show that the Cherokees have a right to remain because they have met these civilizational criteria. And so the, the theory is something like the, the implicit 
rhetorical pose, you might say, is something like, um, to be worthy of citizenship in the American nation, one has to meet certain criteria. By the same way, to be worthy of citizenship as an ally to the American nation, one has to meet those same criteria. So, Boudinot says, the Cherokee authorities have adopted the measures already stated. These he's described with sincere desire to make their nation an intelligent and virtuous people, to make their nation. So the presumption here of, of change to become intelligent and virtuous. With a broad hope for those who have already pointed out to them the road of happiness will now assist them to pursue it. Yet methinks I see my native country rising from the ashes of her degradation, wearing her purified and beautiful garments and taking your seat with the nations of the earth. I can behold her sons bursting the fetters of ignorance and unshackling her from the voice of heathenism. Um, this is why the Cherokee Phoenix imagery is here, this, this idea of a rebirth. Um, the political theory that comes out of this is kind of interesting, and it's actually from this text that the allies not subject, not subjects, um, framing of the book, the, the title itself uh, comes from. Um, Bunot says, she will become not a great, but a faithful ally of the United States. Um, she will in time of plea peace plead the common liberties of America. In time, her intrepid sons will sacrifice her lives for your defense. Because they will be useful to you in coming time, she asks you to assist her in her pre present struggles. If she complete her, complete her civilization, then we hope may hope all native nations will. Then indeed, may the true patriots be encouraged in their efforts to make this world of the West one continuous abode of free, enlightened, and happy people. But it really could say in free, enlightened, and happy peoples, um, because the presumption here is that these will remain their own nation. Um, that they have, in a sense, civilized themselves into a, a equi equivalent moral or legal status. Um, pairing Boudinot with Apes, who wants to draw on the language of savagery in quite a different way. Um, so William Apes is writing about a decade later than Elias Boudinot. He is himself um, about the same age, maybe a little bit older. Um, Apes is someone who is... Uh, he, he's largely self-educated. It's not exactly clear how this happens. He doesn't have a kind of um, tribal structure behind him sending him to school. What he has, he, he's a Pequot growing up in um, kind of shattered village communities on the edge of Massachusetts and Connecticut society. Um, he ends up learning uh, how to write to some degree in ways that aren't quite clear, but then eventually becomes a Methodist minister and, in a sense, learns his oratorical skills um, on the road as a, as a traveling Methodist minister. Um, he in, becomes involved in some political conflicts over Native rights and some other things. Um, the text I want to look at is one called The Eulogy on King Philip, which takes place in 1836. Um, again, the framing text for this is one by Edward Everett. Um, and again, I should have put the year on here. This is 1835. This is... Um, about three months, four months before Apes delivers his speech, also uh, delivered in Massachusetts. Apes is delivering his in Boston. Uh, Everett's is delivered um, outside of Boston, but it's not too far from it. Um, Everett gives us the kind of story of providential extermination is the easiest way to say it. Um, it's the kind of story that occurs in Tocqueville. Uh, Everett is often quite graceful. Ever Everett, I should also say, is interestingly someone who is quite supportive of Cherokee efforts to stave off removal. So prior to reading uh, more about Everett, I, I would have told you that he was a kind of a hero of this uh, time because he was a he, he was a strong defender of Cherokee um, the Cherokee resistance. Um, but his broad kind of account 
of New England history is very much of a providential extinction account. And so, um, you know, uh, although the continent of America, when discovered by the Europeans, was in possession of native tribes, is obviously the purpose of providence, that it should become the abode of civilization, the arts, Christianity. How should these blessings be introduced? Obviously, by no other process. None other is practical than the immigration to the newfound continent from the civilized communities of Europe. And he does want to say later in the text, look, we should, we, we the citizens of Massachusetts, should forgive native people for the violence that they engaged in in resisting this project. They, they couldn't have known. But so they deserve forgiveness. Um, but in a sense, the, the, the disappearance of native people is, is what Providence wants. Apes, it's not clear how directly he's responding to Everett, but uh, Everett's speech, Everett fell within his social circle, um, broadly construed his sort of intellectual social social circle. Um, so it seems that Apes would have been aware of Everett's speech, at least in its outlines. Everett um, had been making this speech. Daniel Webster and others had been making very similar speeches. So Apes is, in a sense, responding to a New England current of providentialism. Um, and Apes wants to flip that over and say, look, why would, why would God have intended this, right? Um, how inhuman it was of those wretches, meaning the early, the early colonists, to come into a country where nature shone in beauty, spreading her wings with a vast continent, sheltering beneath her shades those natural sons of an almighty being. How could they go to work to enslave a free people and call it religion is beyond the power of my imagination, outstrips the revelation of God's word. Oh, thou pretended hypocritical Christian, whatever thou art, to say it was the design of God that we should murder and slay one another because we have the power. Um, and so here we see Apes basically just trying to flip this, this over. This is not the will of God. This is contrary to the will of God. Apes's deep interest in the text is, in a sense, uh, I won't say it in shaming, which I don't think is quite a word, um, but, but causing his audience uh, primarily Bostonian, many of them abolitionists, um, many of them at least soft supporters of the Cherokee resistance, to um, revise their own understanding of the history of New England. Um, part of what this involves for APES is tying together both this discourse about the Fourth of July and the, the, the discourse about the Puritan landing. So. Um, let the children of the pilgrims blush when the son of the forest drops a tear and groans over the fate of his murdered and departed fathers. He would say to the sons of the pilgrims, as Job said to his birthday, let the day be dark, the 22nd of December. This is the time that the pilgrims are thought to have landed on Plymouth Rock. There were commemorative speeches every year on 22nd of December. Everett did one, although I'm not drawing from that one. Um, let it be forgotten in your celebration, in your speeches, and by the burying of the rock that your fathers per first put their foot upon. We say, therefore, let every man of color wrap himself with mourning, for the 22nd of December and the 4th of July are days of mourning and not of joy. And this is something I think where APES is deeply aware of the, what the 4th of July language is beginning to do for abolitionists, which is to give them a clear language um, to say, this is, this is a set of standards that you are failing to meet. APES is trying to draw that in. Um, now, there are various ways in which it doesn't work because the, the ideals of the 4th of July um, have more overt sort of value for the abolitionists than, than what the Puritans might have said in the 22nd of December. Um, but this is where he's trying to, trying to angle for, um, in a sense, to get leverage here, to um, have his audience realize the, the degree to which they need to think of their, their own history very differently. He draws on a language of white savagery, which is quite different from what the Cherokees are doing. So Boudinot is saying, okay, you're right, we're savages now, let us become unsavage. Um, and Apes is trying to flip that over throughout. Um, so upon the banks of the Ohio, a party of, two, and here he's relaying what another historian uh, said, upon the banks of the Ohio, a party of 200 white warriors came across a settlement of Christian Indians and falsely accused them of being warriors. 
They, the Indians, then asked for liberty to prepare for the fatal hour. The white savages gave them one hour, as the historian said. They then prayed together and in tears and cries upon their knees begged pardon of each other and all they had done, after which they informed the white savages that they were now ready. One white man then began with a mallet and knocked them down and continued his work until he killed 15 with his own hand. Then saying it ached, he gave his commission to another. This is actually the text that got me started on this project because I wrote a paper where that was what led off a chapter on APES. And I said, what if that was what our American political thought anthologies had? What if that was where they started? Um, that gives us a very different kind of thing. It's not, we're not imagining sitting bull having a kind of semi-fair fight here. Um, we're imagining people who were on their knees being clubbed to death by you know, a single person with a hammer. Um, there's a lot that could be said about the pairing of Apes and Boudinot, and I try to talk about some of that in the chapters. One of the things that's different is Apes does not represent a specific native nation who is under siege. So he doesn't, in a sense, have a people behind him whose interest he must be shielding. Boudinot does. Boudinot himself makes um, some, uh, I think you might say, morally questionable or at least um, uh, deeply disliked by current decisions later in his life. He is someone who illegally, uh, under Cherokee law, uh, illegally signs a treaty with the U.S. government that finally approves removal, and he is duly executed when he reaches Oklahoma for having done that. But it is plausible to say that Boudinot is in a different situation because he does have a people behind him who have authorized him during the speech, during the writing of the newspaper and so on, to engage in a particular rhetorical pose. One of the things that's been interesting of this, colleagues have said that their students read this and they tend to say, well, look, uh, Boudinot is just a sellout. Apes is the one who's speaking truth to power. The difficulty is that Boudinot is at least is not a sellout in the sense that he's authorized by the formal institutions of Cherokee Nation um, for most of what happens. I mean, even ultimately he isn't, but ultimately he isn't after he's he's ejected from the newspaper ship, um, which is 1834, I believe. Uh, so this is two of the chapters. This is um, part of, there's more, you know, I'm, I could talk about, but these are sort of two of the chapters. And I am aiming for things that are rhetorically complex, that are morally complex, that will give colleagues a lot to actually work with, um, but that at the same time are what I hope going to humanize Native people to make clear the degree to which Native people are trying to um, defend ways of life that have a kind of independent value of their own and that this idea of alliances um, really does have a normative plausibility to it. Okay, so I, I sh I'm getting to the stage where I should probably wrap this up a little bit. So um, let me talk just in the last little bit about the limitations and questions of this book. Um, and the main limitation is just, you know, who, who, who do you choose for a book like this? And I don't really want to find myself in the situation of uh, creating a canon of native thinkers in this way, but it is a situation where we need to have a book of this kind. There are some really good volumes out there. David Martinez has one on the American Indian intellectual tradition, um, which APT people don't read because it's framed for philosophers, and so it just doesn't have a resonance for them. There are others out there that are framed for people teaching history classes that are some of them, you know, a lot better than what the American political thought does, certainly. Um, so there are a lot of resources out there that are not framed for American political thought people, and that's sort of what I'm hoping to do. But the question is, who you know, who do you choose for something like this? Um, the figures up there are all but one of them people that I'm planning on having in the book right now. Um, here's what the tentative chapter plan looks like. And so the first chapter is uh, about the Six Nations and Continental Congress negotiations actually prior to the Declaration of Independence where Continental Congress negotiators are going to the Six Nations 
of the Haudenosaunee and saying, please remain um, neutral in this coming conflict. And there, there's a lot of complicated things. They're trying to draw on the idea of the covenant chain um, and trying to say they are, in a sense, the people who the uh, Haudenosaunee have long had a legal relationship with. And the Haudenosaunee are saying, well, actually, that was the British. Um, and the guy we had that relationship is still around, and he just is, you know, right up by Montreal. So there, there's some interesting um, complexities there. But that text, I think, is really interesting because it, it you see um, the sort of canniness of Six Nations diplomats, but it's also the American negotiators are often using Six Nations legal terms about keeping the path open, about um, polishing the covenant chain. There's a number of ways in which Six Nations legal concepts filter through that discourse. Now, at the end, the American negotiators basically say some version of, okay, we've been playing nice remember you need to remain neutral or we will crush you. So the power relationship comes through as well. Uh, that chapter is, is written in draft and I have some colleagues looking at it right now. Then the next chapter after that, which is a little bit uncertain yet, is going to be one probably looking at Dakota diplomats and US, US negotiators in 1876, um, which is a, when the so-called, it's not the, the peace delegation, um, that's the, the wrong the wrong one, that's earlier, but uh, it's when a, a delegation of folks is going around and signing a whole bunch of treaties with Dakotas, um, with others as well at the same time. And there's some interesting conversations there about um, the allotment of tribal land prior to the Allotment Act and, and a number of other interesting areas there. Um, the next is probably Sarah Winnemucca, who's a Paiute writing in 1883. That's a bit of a slipperier text because she's not engaged in, you might say, direct political argument most of the time. She's engaged in narration of uh, conflict primarily between um, settlers and native people with cavalry often framed as the kind of defenders of the native folks. Um, so there's some interesting things there, I think, that have to do with federalism and the, the kind of relationships between the states and the, the uh, federal government that APT colleagues might like. The next uh, will be Robert, uh, Charles Eastman, who I already mentioned before, probably drawing on his work Soul of the Indian, um, where Eastman is trying to, in a sense, create this vibrant image of native people um, that resonates with the, the progressive movement's um, increasing admiration for an outdoor life. Um, then Robert Yellowtail, who's a crow, um, at, at this point quite a, a young crow, um, delegate who's speaking before the Senate about treaties in the wake of the First World War, drawing on the language of the self-determination of peoples that we see internationally. Um, then Zik Kalashah, who is, again, Dakota, so there's a bit of too heavy Dakotaness in this, perhaps, um, writing prior to the 1934 Indian Reorganization Act, pushing for something like that kind of act. Um, there's a number of alternate writers that we could have here, and, and I'll wrap up just after this. Uh, so there's a number of people that would potentially fit here. Um, George Copeway has a really interesting proposal for a new Indian territory in 1850. Eli Parker is the uh, first native commissioner of Indian affairs who doesn't actually write a lot, but has some potentially interesting stuff. Simon Pokagon writes a, an interesting text called The Red Man's Rebuke in 1899. Andrew Blackbird has a, a piece on um, on uh, Ottawa history that's pretty interesting. Arthur C. Parker is someone who I've written a chapter on and I think I'm going to retract the chapter because Parker ends up um, trying to work within the social Darwinism of the day and it leads to some just pretty awkward and uncomfortable uh, arguments that I sort of think of. I don't think I want to frame Parker centrally in the book. Um, Carlos Montezuma is a similar character uh, in certain ways that he is intellectually extremely important. He has a very strong voice. 
His primary target, however, is the abolition of the Indian Bureau, and so he doesn't fit very well with this idea of a nation-to-nation -nation relationship. Um, so Montezuma, despite his importance, I'm probably going to leave out for that reason. Um, Thomas Bishop Snohomish is someone who is has a, has a kind of nation-to-nation arguments, but the, the text is maybe not so great for teaching purposes. And then Laura Cornelius Kellogg, who is um, drawing on uh, kind of ideas of, a, of new urbanism, kind of Owenism about land and um, kind of a cooperatism about land, who, which I think is really interesting, but um, I think the kind of the non-native side of her presumption sort of swamps um, some of what's the, the native elements of them. But, but, you know, I'd be happy to talk about any of this. So the, the question then, and I've probably talked longer than I wanted to here, so my apologies for that, but I really am interested in, from what you've heard of the, the book so far, like what, and, and I mean this very sincerely, what should be done differently and why? Like presuming this is going to be the book that maybe after it comes out is going to spend, you know, 10 years as a book that um, ideally people in institutions, you know, how many will buy that? I don't know. Um, but again, like the Jack Miller Center people who do these workshops across the country, um, I'm going to be applying for a funding grant from them in the next couple of weeks to um, sort of help bring people here probably and have a conference about this in the next year or two about native writing. But, you know, it, I, I guess I do have a, a input into this pedagogical apparatus, and so it may make a little bit of difference. And because it may make a little difference, that makes it scary. So well, I'll stop. So, so thanks for... First, let's thank So does anyone want to respond to the question, what should be done differently and why? Well, this isn't really a, a, a direct response to your question, what should be done differently and why. It's an honest question about your title. Yeah. Uh, the incipient date, 1775, 1776, is very clear. Yeah. But what is not clear to me is 1934. Yeah. Uh, what happens or doesn't happen in 1934 to make that part of the title? Yeah, and so part of it is there is a, there is a common break in a lot of the APT stuff around 1934 with the New Deal. Um, and so there's kind of the, it's often that something like the historical side of American political thought basically goes to the New Deal, and then people will teach everything from the New Deal to now as being contemporary. Um, and so part of it is that it's also the, uh, the New Deal has what's called the Indian Reorganization Act associated with it. And the Indian Reorganization Act, although it's imperfect in a lot of ways, is um, a moment where the U.S. acknowledges Native people, not exactly as nations, as something like slightly more robust municipalities for some purposes, slightly less robust municipalities for others. Um, but it is, a, it is a substantial inflection point in, um, in Native politics. It's then reversed by allotment in the 1950s and 60s, and then reversed again um, in the 19, early 1970s. Um, but so part of it is I think the, the 1934 will be something that my audience will recognize that, okay, it ends with a new deal. Um, so yeah. Yeah, I said. Sort of question, primarily, um, as you are talking about, this is uh, entering into an area where there is a particular. Yeah. Um, so I guess my clarification, or what you see as this, in terms of how it engages with classrooms, is if you're dealing with American political theorists who are going to be teaching this, who have very little experience in trying to cover these topics, and then yeah. students who are also going to be in that position, um, how do you frame, like, and maybe this isn't exactly the place where the book comes into play, but what kind of conversations need to occur um, with students for them to make that leap into this area? Yeah. Um, especially, and how do you enforce that that's a good area that they're building an understanding rather than just kind of a sounding chamber of, you know, an American political theorist reads this, comes up with a conclusion, and then students accept it as a professor. 
Yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's a good question. And so part of what I'm trying to do in the book is I'm, I'm a little bit, the chapters that exist, I'm a little bit over explainy, I guess, about what goes on in the chapters in terms of the context, in terms of the rhetorical styles, in terms of the arguments. And the hope is that faculty members will, in a sense, so, so I guess to say, my experience from the people who've taught the pieces before was that they taught it the first time and they didn't know what they were doing. But they, after they had taught it, they felt sort of invigorated to do more. And so um, a couple of the people who I gave, one, one person that I gave a chapter on, APES 2, for example, um, taught it the first time, basically just drawing on my chapter. And now I've, I've seen what he teaches. Now, it's totally different than what I said um, because he's gone in all kinds of, he's like taken it up and sort of dug into it in a, in a deeper way. And so, um, so the hope is that what's going to happen is that people will read this stuff and then they'll actually do more research and they're getting sort of pulled in as faculty members to this knowledge base so that they can, I mean, you know, like, they're going to be native students in the class who are going to hear this stuff and be like, dude, you don't know what you're talking, you don't know anything about removal. Um, and that's just going to be a problem. Um, and I, I don't think there's any way around it. But the hope is that after a time or two of them, of people teaching this, they'll start to get pushed back and they'll start to get pushed in interesting directions. So one person who was teaching um, at Whitman College, the first time he did it, um, used the stuff I had and had nothing about anything to do with the area where the college is located and his students basically came up after and said that's cool and all but like actually from here like you know how come there's nothing to do with the surrounding 500 miles and he ended up changing the way he taught um, quite a bit I mean unfortunately now he's at University College London or something so all his work is like shifted to England and so it doesn't do him any good there at least not in the same way um, but but that's the hope um, but I know it's it's a kind of a it's a kind of a weak hope the problem I feel like there's, there's a kind of if you pull things too far um, then you're the audience is just not going to read the book if you pull things too far away from the standing tropes and framing and everything then the audience is not going to necessarily bother with it um, or if they so um, one colleague who has done some really interesting work on Vine Deloria and actually has a nice uh, chapter on Laura's Cornelius Kellogg which is part of the reason I don't feel a necessity to put Kellogg in there too because his is, is actually pretty accessible uh, for people that way um, but he wrote what I think is a pretty good book but he ended up spending so much time talking with Native Studies folks that you actually kind of have to know a lot of Native Studies to know where that book is coming from um, and it's it's a good book but it's it's just become something that native studies folks are going to see as a really interesting intervention in maybe not intervention but, but exposition of particular thinkers but the people outside of it are probably not going to be accessible to it so yeah it's a balance and that's why I'm sort of really concerned about getting it close to right because I wanted to sort of pull people in new directions but I also wanted to pull them in sort of gently enough that they are willing to be pulled when time is short and they don't necessarily know what they're doing and you know faculty are lazy about revising syllabi takes takes quite a bit of work the first time you do something that's what I'm hoping to cut that down so I hope that makes sense yeah, definitely. yeah. That's a great answer. I think that is certainly a good amount of just you have to build a book to a point where they can under, like, that they're going, like your professors are going to understand it and students are going to be willing to engage with it yeah and that's the and that's the hope and I'm trying to it's it's in, in the chapter, especially the one on the Six Nations stuff, I find myself, it's longer than I wanted it to be, and I find myself sometimes explaining things that I feel like I, it would, it's probably too much to put in, um, but there, the, some of the politics of the time is really complicated. Um, 
the, a person who's been the long-term inter interface, you might say, between the British Crown and the Six Nations has recently died, and his son-in-law has taken over, and it's like, I end up explaining basically three pages of this, what has happened, um, but I don't want to drop it because it's important to that unpacking that relationship that the Six Nations saw themselves as having with the British Crown via this specific set of people. Um, but it's, you know, I, I, so I want faculty members who don't really know anything about to read it and feel comfortable enough that when students ask, what's up with that, that they can say, okay, well, here's, here's what's going on. Um, but yeah. So, uh, yeah. Well, from uh, reading of the, uh, the journals of uh, Lewis and Clark, it was clear that the, you know, the, the, the thinking uh, of, the, of, the, of the different leaders of the band and so forth were, uh, yeah. were square on with republicanism, a uh, nation meeting another nation. Yeah. Uh, and it was obvious the other, uh, the uh, Lewis and Clark and coming from Jefferson didn't have that idea at all. Yeah. So is that any part of, uh, is that, does that fit with political thought in terms of uh, establishing political thought, just the those narratives of, uh, of the journals and that kind of research? So I'm looking primarily, I've, I've wanted to have focused primarily on individual thinkers because the American political thought stuff tends to be focused around individual primary sources. But I do want to, there will be two chapters that are treaty records. And the one is this, this Six Nations treaty record. And so it's, I'm basically teaching from the uh, record of the negotiations that was made at the time. Um, and so there's a, a, the Continental Congress sends the diplomats with a text that they're supposed to read, um, and the chapter sort of starts off with that, and then it, it follows the, the treaty record. Um, there, the, the tricky thing, obviously, with that is that you have a transcription of um, what was a multi-language translation project in the first place, and so you have... Mohawk negotiators, um, Onondaga negotiators, and they're using translators of uncertain quality, and then the record has an uncertain quality. And so there's, there's so much of the Six Nations negotiation records that you can tell that there are these reiterated themes. So you can get a sense that, yeah, basically this must have been close to what was said, but there's a lot of slack. I, I've been reading treaty records, especially from the Great Plains period, and those vary highly in terms of the degree of quality of the translation. There's one actually that I read that I thought, this is like the translator is doing a really nice job here, or the transcription says, this is really vivid. And then you get further on, and one of the things that the native folks complain about is they say, we want a different translator. We don't like this person. <laughs> like, this guy's not good. He's just, and I like, oh, okay, I don't know what, what to do now. Um, <laughs> And so they, they don't, this kind of stuff doesn't figure in. I've thought that if, if this book goes through, so, so one of the things I'm planning to do with this, hopefully, is to have an anthology that goes along with it, and that that anthology would then include more of the treaty record stuff. Um, the, so that would be the hope, is that some of that stuff, the negotiation record, sort of helps to show Native folks talking about the nation-to-nation -nation relationship really clearly and the the six nation stuff is really clear in terms of the way that it's framed nation to nation and the american diplomats are actually really clear about um we are they they say they are 13 colonies who are who are allied together just as the six nations are are allied with one another and so the language of international uh diplomacy there is really clear the language in the 1876 stuff is um 
do you see native folks trying to draw on this nation to nation language over and over again and you see the american diplomats sometimes playing along with it a little bit and then pretty quickly slapping it back down and so in a sense what i do want my colleagues to have a sense is this this basic framing of the nation to nation relationship but also to get some sense of the the kind of vividness of what people are doing when they're trying to to talk about this. So one of the things which is a little bit unfortunate about APES is he has a really interesting and vivid text where he says some things about treaty rights in passing. Um, and I guess he just assumed his audience, because this was that the Cherokees were just about to be forced into exile, I guess he just assumed his audience had been following the news and so he could just sort of reference it. Um, but it's a real shame now because APES has this really powerful language in many cases. Um, and then he has like two sentences about treaty rights being violated. And so so the hope is that the nation-to-nation stuff will come through with this, um, but that it the the overall framing of it is, you might say, there's enough going on as well that colleagues don't feel like they're just being whacked over the head with, okay, say this. Um, that they're saying like, okay, that's that's right. That's a good framing that runs throughout. So I hope that makes sense. That's, yeah. Can I ask you about that nation-to-nations question? Sure. And, um, so I understand that the title, Allies, Not Subjects, is from Putnam, right? That's what you yeah. said. Yeah. yeah. And I understand, given where he's coming from, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. But allies implies... Yeah. So my inclination is to say, not allies, but nations, or right. something like that, because clearly... The nation-to-nation relationship is not always one of alliance. Sometimes right. it's one of antagonism, and that's so. That's my question. So this is exactly. I mean, when when Kirby and I first talked about this project, and and he said, "Yeah, that's that sounds like a good project," but the title sucks. Um, and <laughs> and I, I think it's fair. And so the reason I've I've gotten that is so it's the 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 ideal of equal treatment that we see in the way abolitionists draw on the Fourth of July is not the reality, but it is a, a, a recurrent ideal, you might say. And I think the idea of the relationship between Native peoples in the United States being one of alliance has the same kind of value. And so I think I'm a, I'm a little bit worried if you frame it as separate nationhood, then um, it, it gets too separate. And, you know, that the students who are not in any way interested in Native stuff are just going to say, okay, well, it doesn't matter what the relationship looks like. It's just, you know, U.S. and Canada are nations. They can fight it out however they want to. And and the relationship of alliance has a stronger idea that there have been treaties made, there have been promises made, and that those promises are promises that need to be upheld. So the allies part of it is not necessarily to say, hey, Native folks, remember to treat the U.S. well. It's intended to say, non-Native folks, remember that there have been promises of alliance made here but that's, but yeah, I mean, this is what Kirby has said too. So I'm sort of sad that Kirby couldn't be here and, you know, that, and, um, but I, I sort of know that's what he would say. And I, I hope that, I hope that <laughs> persuade him, but I haven't actually quite given it to him like that. But Gordon, did you want to jump? Yeah. Well, I, I understand now that American political thought, the America means the United States. Yeah. And so you have to start at 1775, so you can't start earlier. Yeah. So I was going to suggest earlier. That. So instead... <laughs> The, uh, the oratory, the relationship between oratory and political writings seems like something that needs to be, um, needs to be articulated. Uh, yeah. Because some of the uh, African American and some of the Native American, including Hoppes, were known as uh, excellent orators. Yeah. And people would go to hear them speak. And the publication kind of, I think, in Hoppes's 
career, it was secondary to his job as giving speeches. Yeah. And so studying the rhetoric and the oratory is important. And likewise, there's a number of anthologies of Native American oratory and speakers and speeches, yeah. uh, many of which will be the kind of thing you saw with Sitting Bull, uh, that it's not really authentic. Uh, it's yeah. Someone made it up afterwards, and uh, <laughs> so you have that problem. So the, the tension between the, um, the thinkers, which implicitly means writers, yeah. publishers, and the orators who are uh, finding an audience in a different way. Yeah, and, and one of the things, so I, I the chapter on uh, eulogy on King Philip is one where I try to do, uh, what do you want to say, the amount of justice a political scientist can do to the rhetorical skill, because I think there, there is, the, the rhetorical capacities that he have has are um, pretty astonishing a lot of cases. And, and in in responding, if he's responding to Everett or not, I'm not sure. It's, I'm drawing the, the idea that it's a direct response from Marine Conkle's book, but um, that Everett is himself a masterful orator, and Apis is, Apis is part of that sort of moment. Um, so I've tried to talk about the rhetorical sort of moves that he's making, the skill that he has there, which is in sharp contrast to someone like Boudinot, who just, he's, he's not, it's not that Boudinot is an unskilled writer, but he doesn't have anything like the um, aspiration uh, to, you might say, move his audience in the same way. And so, so that is one of the things that I talk about. And, and I said each chapter, um, I, I just touched on this really briefly, but each chapter ends with a kind of general question that people can talk about. And the, the Boudinot chapter basically ends with, okay, he ended up selling out his nation um, or violating the laws of his nation for what he thought was its greater good. Was that the right thing to do? Like, that's a thing you can talk about. And, and with uh, eulogy on King Philip, then I close by saying, okay, given his rhetorical situation um, are the what might it would it have been possible to do better with his rhetorical framings and, and tools and, and if so what might that have looked like um, but I think that's I mean I, I think from the perspective of people who who have a greater eye for rhetoric it probably doesn't get that degree of importance the, the stuff about um, uh, uh, people who are orders. I mean, one of the things that I really thought about what to do with Red Jacket, because Red Jacket yeah. is, seems to have chosen his own translators in many cases, and so, and, and was able to speak in English, but chose to speak in Seneca because he, he felt like that was his, 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 his language, but he was apparently, as I understand it, according to the, the volume of Red Jacket speeches that I have, then he chose his own translators most of the way through. And so those, that record of speeches is probably as reliable as you're going to get for stuff that's a transcription. Um, but but there's still transcriptions of what his speech was at the time by people of dubious quality. So, yeah, and, and one of the things that, you know, it's um, when I talked to David Martinez, who did an edited volume about the American Indian intellectual tradition for philosophy orientation, that one of the things he said when I said oh, I was going to look at people who had done the writing themselves, is look, you're missing a lot of really interesting stuff. Um, and I think that's true. There's a lot of really interesting oratorical stuff that is, um, at best, we're getting through these kind of dark curtains or something like that. And, um, and, and maybe I'm taking the easy way out and dodging most of it, but that's, I'm partly having a couple of chapters in there where what we're hearing is the translations of the oratory so that at least people who read it can say, okay, well, we, we have some sense of what some of the texture of this looks like. But I don't know. I don't know if that's the right well, the, direction. So the first chapter, uh, the... Uh, of the Masonic um, negotiations 
And if you have the treaty text, you have the, the record of the um, transactions of negotiators. Yeah. And some um, scholars have uh, written about that as an early form of American theater. People uh, follow those proceedings in newspapers and they anticipated great oratory from yeah, yeah, that's right. And then it in those. So right, the but Red Jacket's translator is probably thinking he's got an audience he needs to impress with great oratory. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And I didn't think about it right because Franklin has published it. Franklin had published a whole bunch of those. I mean, Ben Franklin was like published a whole bunch of treaty records, and um, yeah, yeah, that's that's and they actually draw on some of that published treaty record in the the American diplomats quote back to um, the Six Nation diplomats as your ancestor said at this um, and uh, and the Six Nations people actually say oh his brother's right here what do you remember and then the brothers say yeah that's more or less what he said sure um, but the, the, the hint is sort of like yeah okay you guys aren't gonna you know trick us with what we said we we remember what was said too um, but that's but that's a good point yeah that's a good point um, because theater is a collective Right? Yeah. It involves um, actors and playwrights and directors. And yeah, yeah. So, and the treaty negotiation, the same kind of thing. It doesn't have the. Whereas, apart from that, it sounds like the American political thought is very um, you know, heroic, author, thinker yeah. model. I think that's right. I think that's basically the. That's basically right. Is yeah. It's a, the heroic author thinker model is about. That's about right. And um, yeah, that's that's really helpful actually. But I'm more thinking about like the pre-1776 um, like start date, um, which didn't make sense because that's you know when the country was founded. But um, I was I guess I'm wondering like to what extent you like clarify the like ongoing um, sorry the the context that was going on prior to 1776 because um, I know like you probably like discussed that in the first chapter. But I just my only concern was that um, as somebody who like doesn't really know anything about yeah. nations, uh, sorry, native studies, um, I'd be like I think if I was learning that this is an undergrad and like hearing like the nation to nation thing, I would kind of assume that like the nation uh, of like a nation of Native Americans like already existed. But to my understanding, I don't think that it was as like cohesive. Yeah. So I don't. I just. Yeah, and that's and and so the the other the question about the pre seventeen seventy six stuff is also too. If it, if I do have an anthology, the the American political thought stuff does talk about the pre American stuff, um, preferentially so from about um, seventeen sixty on, as the tensions of over the relation with the colonies of the crown start to sharpen. Um, but there there's a lot of interesting stuff from that period. Yeah, certainly. And I got to say, I don't know it nearly well enough, but. Um, if it comes to that, I'd be happy to learn all kinds of interesting stuff about that, too. Um, yeah, and part of what I try to do in the, the chapter on the Six Nations is to talk about, so the Six Nations have a long record of, uh, as a confederacy, um, prior to contact with the Dutch and, and with um, European colonialists in general. Um, and I do talk about the degree to which that confederacy has a kind of uh, a substantial period of flowering in, and I'm going to get the dates sort of wrong here, but I think in about the 1720s, something like that, that the Confederacy of Six Nations comes to uh, subsume, depending on how you calculate the terms of subsumption, up to about 12 
other, you know, about 12 total nations that are in relationships of alliance or um, partial dependence and so on, um, that then gets sort of rolled back um, as colonial powers expand. And so there is this situation where the Six Nations um, operating as a confederacy is getting it's sort of so the Six Nations uh, geographically lay in what's now northern New York. And so for most of that time period, they're right between the British and the French. And so they can push off both sides and they can play off both sides. When the French are finally legally squeezed out of North America in 1763, suddenly they've got British colonies on both sides of them. And they think, oh, wow, we're in a great deal of trouble because now we can't negotiate. When the revolution starts, people see, oh, there's a moment now. Suddenly we're in between two sides. If we do this right we can survive this ugliness that's coming. And they, they're pretty clear that ugliness is coming, but they're trying to like let both sides fight around them. Um, and when it, when it ultimately comes down to it is the, um, the Six Nations end up fragmenting about which side they think is gonna win. And so they end up choosing different sides. And so the Six Nations basically dies in 1776 when um, the League can't come to a common foreign policy. Um, and so that's sort of part of what I'm trying to do is to give people that read that, the sense that um, Native communities have distinctive um, legal traditions of their own, distinctive relationships of their own, that there's, it's not like there's two nations here, that there's an American nation and a, and a Native nation of a singular, it's that there's a lot of different Native communities. But that's, that's something I need to think about how to, how to frame the kind of multiplicity of Native communities and, and often the tensions. And this is one of the things that in terms of the Six Nations, I've sort of navigated pretty carefully because the Six Nations, um, didn't treat their neighbors well in a lot of situations. I mean, partly they were able to amass um, power given their trade position in relationship to the Dutch um, that allowed them to get firearms and to um, trade on, on better terms than some other folks. And so the, um, the Six Nations and the so-called Three Fires Confederacy had some big fights, and the Six Nations ended up losing after having um, been pretty violent towards some of their neighbors. So there, there's, you know, the, the international relations of the period is, is pretty violent because you have native communities that realize that um, if their neighbors get guns and they don't have them, they're in a great deal of trouble. And the various colonial forces are saying, well, we want all your, we want all the furs that you can bring us. Um, and if you trap a whole bunch of beavers, then beavers start to disappear. And so the only way you continue to get the stuff that you've now become reliant upon for your self-defense is to go out into somebody else's territory and look for new beavers, or maybe not somebody else's territory, but territory that has has been of ambiguous um, uh, ownership to that period. So, but but yeah, that's that's helpful, and that's a longer answer than probably was necessary, but I think that's helpful to, yeah. Yeah, because yeah, like my, my only thing is that like, so very confusing narratives that none of them really fit with each other, and it's yeah. all just corrections. Um, but like, um, I feel like, if anything, like the pre-chapter conversations, the intro conversations, would just like at least give enough context to make like the negotiations around republicanism yeah. make more sense. Because um, I was surprised. I think one, somebody said it earlier that like um, part of the like uh, negotiations on like the Native American side was sort of like <clears throat> reflective principles of republicanism, which I was. Kind of surprised by because like yeah. um, that's not the typical like big broad narrative that you get um, and yeah so it's, it's just um, at least enough context to kind of make that negotiation make a little bit more sense um, yeah. but yeah I mean like you can't include everything 
don't feel pressured to. Yeah, yeah, no, but it's right. And Republicanism, I've thought about a lot about that term because it it has multiple, it, it does sort of multiple things for the APT audience. And so um, some of them are going to hear Republicanism in the sense that the American founders thought of it, the idea that um, free republics are um, fragile and sensitive to the virtues and vices, you might say, of their citizens. And so that societies remain free, not only based on their institutions, but based on the character of the people that live within them. And that's part of what people like APES uh, and Boudinot are negotiating is these ideas of virtues. Um, there's also the sort of non-APD, but the way republicanism is used in a lot of the current political philosophy is um, this broader idea of uh, politics of non-domination. And their native folks are they're certainly trying to draw on, um, trying to push back against domination, but also trying to draw on elements of arguments against domination in American political thought that don't necessarily have to do with republicanism as the founders themselves understood it, but the idea of, idea of, idea of domination. And so um, Eastman is really interesting in the way he uses freedom in relation to um, the the way of life that he grew up with until he was a teenager, prior, you know, sort of outside of um, colonial society. And, and he talks a lot about freedom and the, the kind of the freedom that Native folks had to um, make their own choices, not just as collectives, but as individuals, and, and the sort of the idea that this was the form of life that was um, most suitable to human creatures, and that human creatures will freely choose if given the opportunity. Um, and there's some really interesting things going on in Eastman. I don't know that I'm clever enough to capture them. Um, but So that's sort of where I'm going with the title. But I'm, I'm, the Republicanism part, I'm not 100% sold on. Um, and so that's the thing I probably should ask colleagues about more if they would have a, a preferred framing. But. Let me comment, comments too late in every sense Thanks, of the term. But it's obvious to me from the entire discussion and your outline of your project that it centers on Native American and indigenous uh, political thought and political development and so forth. Yeah. So I still have serious reservations about the framing of African American thought okay. because yeah. of the fundamentally different experiences yeah. of African American civil rights leaders, uh, it's, it's, a, it's an ongoing project. Yeah, right. We can't talk about uh, the black nations or our treaties with the black nations or yeah. our relations with the black nations, and they can't run their own casinos. Right. Uh, so I, I think that it's, it, it's, it's a can of worms which you might be able to avoid. Uh, I know it's very attractive because of the comparison and contrast aspect. But um, just to put it in a nutshell, um, we've been talking a lot about 1776 as right. sort of the foundation, but the Declaration of Independence is an aspirational right. document. Right. And it's aspirational in every sense of the term, historical right. sense of the term. Uh, there was still a war to be fought. Right. And we tend to forget about 1787 and 1789. Yeah. And we don't celebrate March 1789, which is when the Constitution, right. the United States, really began as a political institution. And it's interesting because that nuts and bolts governing document actually mentions black 
Americans, and they are to be in each way as three-fifths of a person. And that, I think, is just a, a, a sort of fundamentally different situation in every sense of the term, moral, philosophical, and political, than the Native American experience. And so I say it's too late because you obviously are going to include this, and I think you know, it, it is your project, but it just seems to me to be something which doesn't really fit your entire project very neatly. Yeah, and and part of it. So I do want I do is this idea of the rhetorical value of references back to the Declaration of Independence. That and and the Declaration has a huge weight in the way these American political thought courses are taught. Is that um, you know, paragraph two of the Declaration is really seen as the the core of what the American creed should be, even if it isn't. Um, and so there is this kind of really strong touchstone. It's really easy to. Um, show the way that abolitionists like Douglas and Walker and people like MLK are drawing on that language of a promise un, un, unfinished. And one of the things that I think is tricky for the Native stuff is because there's not a touchstone to, to bring students back to that way, then it's really hard to draw on those kind of rhetorical resources in a framework. And so partly what I'm trying to do with doing that is actually to call attention to the the difference is here and to say, okay, like it's it's not that being enslaved is somehow an easier social problem to solve, but the rhetorical um, target that you should be drawing on was easier to spot. Um, and this is something that the abolitionists in, you know, you know drawing on the, because the 4th of July, you have these celebrations of it every year and people read the declaration. And so in part of what I, what I want to frame it, this is basically will be in the introduction of the book, is to talk a little about the, the celebrations of the, the 4th of July every year and the way that abolitionists drew on that in the pre-Civil War period and the way that that, in a sense, helps to bring the Declaration of Independence to a state where it, it feels like an aspirational document for sort of all concerned. Um, but because there isn't something like that on the Native side, I want to sort of get that out there and say, okay, it would be really nice if there was. Um, yeah. But there isn't, and so there there is this sort of need to, uh, I don't know, as an American political thought scholar, work a little bit harder to give a framing to your students, to give a framing for yourself for what's going on. That's partly the idea why I'm hoping that the idea of alliances will kind of do that. And again, you know, the, the, so the other thing just to say that I've thought about whether to put in there or not um, to have a chapter on, and I don't think I will, but is the legal case Wooster v. Georgia. Um, because the Wooster v. Georgia is a legal case where the Supreme Court basically ends up buying Cherokee legal doctrines that are written up by non-Cherokees, but that seem to be first formulated by these young Cherokee men at the high school in Massachusetts. And so um, a guy named uh, David Brown uh, seems to have written a very, when in high school, written a sort of high school essay more or less articulating the legal doctrine that ends up in Worcester v. Georgia. That speech is gone. And he died young, and so we don't really have anything about him other than a bare knowledge that he wrote this speech uh, drawing on Vettel, who is central to the, the Worcester v. Georgia decision. Um, and so there are, there's a sort of, there's a paragraph in um, the Worcester v. Georgia 
decision that says, you know, the words treaty and nation are words, is the Supreme, U.S. Supreme Court saying, the words treaty and nation are words of our own language chosen by us with well-defined meanings in our own law and practice. Um, and so there it's the U.S. Supreme Court saying basically like, okay, hey, look, we've made treaties. The, the treaties are in our own language. They commit us to a set of practices that are supposed to follow from them. Um, and that practice is one in which native nations are, you know, it has all the, the unpleasantness of being domestic dependent nations, um, but at the same time it's calling attention to the fact that the U.S. has real obligations that are the cre created by those treaty relationships. So Worcester v. Georgia has some, I mean, it's an imperfect decision in a lot of ways, but it, it's interesting in that it's basically taking Cherokee legal doctrines and um, they've moved from... Uh, being sort of, you know, there's, a, there's a first case, Cherokee Nation v. Georgia, where the Cherokees get to the Supreme Court and are told you don't have standing to sue. One of the, um, one of the dissents in that takes up this Cherokee legal doctrine. Um, but then when it comes to Worcester v. Georgia the next year, then the court as a majority takes up this, what had been the dissenting doctrine, but what was originally the doctrine of the Cherokee lawyers. And so, you know, anyway, that's something maybe I should have a chapter on, but I, I I don't know. Yeah. But that is one of the places where there is something that is potentially a kind of clear framing that's not it's not going to have the resonance of the Declaration of Independence, but that it does have a clear statement about nation to nation relationships.